Well, greetings and salutations, everybody. Welcome to my YouTube channel. My name is John Campia, and this is Mailbag. Now, what is Mailbag? Well, I'm awfully glad that you asked. See, every day on the John Campy Show, Monday through Friday, we take the second half of the show to take the live comments and questions from the people watching the show live. However, if you're one of those people who watches the show any of the other 22 hours during the day, and you'd like to get a comment or question read by myself or Rob or sometimes both of us, then there's a way for you to do that, and that's Mailbag. To get a question on Mailbag, simply go down into the description of this video. You'll see a tip link there. Click on that or enter it in manually at www.streamelements.com slash movieblogtv slash tip. You'll be getting your comment or question read on Mailbag if we deem your comment or question appropriate to be used on our show. And of course, you'll be supporting our channel at the same time. And all of us involved with The John Cavia Show, thank you guys so much for your support. And today is Friday. Congrats on making it through to the end of another week, guys. And I'm flying solo today. I gave Rob half the day off and everybody else is gone. So it's just you and me talking about all the things in the world of movies and streaming that we like to talk about. So let's not waste any time and get right to it. We're going to start things off here with uh, Jed Elias, who writes, one of two. Black Panther 2. I remember you said Shuri shouldn't be Black Panther. Absolutely not. Uh, so... Main story is Shuri inheriting the title from T'Challa. Uh, during a mission with M'Baku, something goes wrong. She recognizes how she's she's could be putting Wakanda in danger by being the leader. Uh, decides to give role to M'Baku instead and appreciate, appreciate herself uh, for the already established tech role in Wakanda. With Ryan Coogler directing again, could be amazing and emotionally powerful, especially with within idea of true leadership and responsibility. All right, thanks for sending that in, Jed. Um, yeah, so I have said before, Shuri absolutely should not be the new Black Panther. Now, Shuri is actually one of my favorite characters in the MCU. Uh, actually, two of my favorite characters in the MCU got introduced in Black Panther, and that's Shuri and M'Baku. I love both of them. But Shuri, there is nothing about her that she, she should either be the ruler of Wakanda, nor that she should be Black Panther. Um, for instance, her father raised T'Challa for his whole life to assume the throne. And so he's been trained in leadership and, you know, all that kind of stuff, what it means to rule. Shuri, on the other hand, who is the smartest character in the MCU, has she lives in a lab. She has no respect for the traditions of Wakanda. Remember, M'Baku, he was even incredibly angry at the ceremony. He says, you, you have this child who doesn't even like respect our tradition. She doesn't know anything about our culture or our ways. Like, There's nothing about her that should be the ruler of Wakanda. There's especially nothing about her that should be Black Panther. Right? She's not, she doesn't know how to fight. I mean, yeah, she can put on the laser, laser hand rocket things, but she does not know how to fight. She can't be really either of those. And so, and not to mention in Wakanda, there is a, you know, law or tradition that you got to earn it by combat. And if she goes in there and tries to fight pure hand to hand with M'Baku, I mean, or any of the other who would lay claim to the throne, it would be very difficult. I, and therefore, I don't see any way that she could even be either Black Panther or the monarch of Wakanda to begin with. Now, remember, Wakanda, they don't just hand you the throne. you got to win it by combat. And so, yeah, that's the one problem with the story that I see, Jed, is that she would have to first either, she'd have to become the ruler of Wakanda first, and I just don't see how that happens. Now, again, I'm not claiming any insider information on Black Panther to Wakanda Forever. I'm not, so they may very well do that. I, just to me, it seems a little problematic, but we'll find out, Jed. We'll find out. All right, next up, uh, Jed Elias also writes, did you see that Shazam 2 got moved to this Christmas? I love the first Shazam, so I'm incredibly hyped for the sequel. Uh, movie of the, for the sequel, movie of the year incoming, especially with Rachel Zegler and Jaimon Hansu co-starring. Um, wait a second here. Let me see if I understand what you're talking about for a moment. Okay, I just had to straighten out what you say. So of the year incoming, you mean this year? Because it's been moved to this year. Yeah, it was supposed to come out in 2023, but they have moved it to this year. Now, yeah, look, I am of two minds. We talked about this on the John Campus show the other day. I'm kind of of two minds on this. On the first one hand, I love the first Shazam. It's in my top three best DCU movies. Man of Steel is number one. I think James Gunn's Suicide Squad is number two. And I think Shazam is number three. That's how much I like it. I mean, I'm, I adore it. 
it does make me a little bit nervous that they're kind of throwing it into the wood chipper to go against Avatar 2. So I don't know if that means they have confidence or if it means they have no confidence, but whatever. I'm just looking forward to seeing Shazam 2, whatever the case is, Jed. All right, thanks for writing that in, man. Next up, Renee C. writes, and tips in like $20. Thank you, Renee, for supporting our channel on that level. And Renee writes, it may just be me, but the Inquisitor in the Obi-Wan trailer reads as more goofy in live action versus the intimidating vision in Rebels, which would be hard to replicate on a good day. I hope the look translates better in the context of the show. Thanks. Yeah, look, 100%. Look, the trailer for Obi-Wan is fantastic. And the Inquisitor comes across as fantastic, especially with the narration over the thing, right? Like hunting Jedi, the secret hunting Jedi's patience you know that whole thing is great but the look of the inquisitor is not great but here's the thing once the show gets started we'll see the inquisitor and then we'll probably have my reaction which is oh that doesn't look so good but if the character is good that'll quickly disappear and it really won't matter like for instance i, I go back quite often to the cw show black lightning i love that show i think it's great Black Lightning's costume is the dumbest costume ever in the history of superhero television. Like, it's it's ridiculous. It's a ridiculous costume. At least the way they translated it into live action looked ridiculous. But here's the thing. Because I like the character and I like the show, the, the, the look of it kind of just faded into the background for me. And yeah, even though out of context, I don't like the look of this Inquisitor per se, I got a feeling the character is going to be awesome. And with the character being awesome, and if the character is awesome, I think ultimately, Renee, it probably won't bother us so much. So I don't know. We will find out soon enough. May 25th is when it comes. I'm excited for it. I'm sure you are too. And we'll see if we can get by the look of it. All right. Next up, Kylo Ken writes, Hi, guys. Just saw the teaser for Strange New Worlds, and it got me kind of excited. I'm torn. Every season I go into Discovery with a monochrome of hope, it will be better than the last, and I end up dropping out. I enjoy Picard. Should I allow myself to get too excited? All right. So for those of you who don't know, Strange New Worlds is the new Star Trek show coming to Paramount+. And it takes the crew of the Enterprise that we saw in Discovery, and now it's their own show. And I thought the trailer was great. Hell, even Rob, who hates all things new Star Trek, even he thought the new trailer for Strange New World looks pretty good. Um, I personally thought it looked great, and I'm excited for it. Now, I personally like Discovery. Um, it's not like one of the best shows on TV to me, but I, I like Discovery. I really like Picard. Like, I'm with you on Picard. I, I really, really like it. Although I have not seen episode two of season two yet. I've only gotten through the first episode this season. But, yeah, I think we can get excited about Strange New Worlds. And if it doesn't work out, it doesn't work out. But right now, I'm with you. I think it looks pretty good. All right. Next up. The Cape Crusader writes, Hello, John. One of my favorite parts of the show is your chemistry with Rob. Well, thank you very much. I think you guys work really well together. I was wondering how did uh, Rob and you meet? What prompted you guys to start working together? Thanks and bring on the filthy. All right. Well, I'll give you a little bit of inside baseball on this uh, a bit as I take a sip of my drink. Um, so back in the AMC days, I created a show called Heroes. And I got, uh, even though he was hesitant to do it, he didn't know that he was ready to do it. I, I convinced John Schnepp to be the host of Heroes because I was hosting everything else at the time. And I thought Schnepp, being far more comic book knowledgeable than I ever was, I thought he would be the great, a great guy to host. And I thought it would be a really good vehicle for him. And he started hosting it. So a while into doing Heroes, um, Schnepp started feeling more, more comfortable to bring in certain guests to join us. And one day he brought in this guy. Robert Meyer Burnett, a writer, director, producer. And uh, Rob and I just really hit it off. And so Rob and I did a lot of episodes of Heroes together with, you know, me, him, and Schnepp. We did a lot of episodes of Heroes together. And I just really enjoyed working with him. Now, fast forward a little bit. I left Collider. And after after the, the big man himself, Schnepp, passed away, um... For whatever reason, and I'm not going to go into behind-the-scenes drama or anything like that, but uh, Collider, they just started to separate themselves from Rob. I mean, again, I'm not going to go into the behind-the-scenes drama, but so I got a hold of Rob 
when I found out that he was having to put up with a whole bunch of drama over there. And I just simply said to him, I said, look, if, if it's not working out there, uh, I'm doing my own. I'd been doing my channel for a little while. I said, I think you and I work really well together on, on camera. And uh, would you want to do my show with me? And he immediately said, yes, he really loves working with me on my shows as well. And so we started working together and, uh, and uh, you know, he's been doing the show with me off and on ever since like 2018. And it's been great. I really love having it on the show. Thanks for writing that in Cape Crusader. All right. Hey guys, we want to take a moment and thank the sponsor of this video, Athletic Greens. Now, I started taking Athletic Greens because I don't eat enough vegetables, and I was looking for a way to make up for that deficit in my diet of those vitamins and minerals that I really needed in my system, and thank goodness I found Athletic Greens, and I literally take it every morning. You see, with one scoop of Athletic Greens, you're absorbing 75 high-quality vitamins, minerals, whole foods, source superfoods, probiotics, and adaptogens to help you start your day right. This special blend of ingredients supports your gut health, your nervous system, your immune system, your energy, recovery, focus, all the things. And my wife got onto it, and now she absolutely loves it. You know, tons of people take some kind of multivitamin, and it's important to choose one with high-quality ingredients that your body will actually absorb like athletic greens so right now it's time to reclaim your health and arm your immune system with a convenient daily nutrition especially heading into the flu and cold season it's just one scoop and a cup of water every day that's it no need for a million different pills and supplements to look out for your health to make it easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com slash campia. Again, that's athleticgreens.com slash campia to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. Next up, uh, the Riddler's Minion writes, Hello, John and Rob. And obviously, it's just me today. Why do some shows have different directors per episode, especially shows like Peacemaker that are the brainchild of a certain creatives like James Gunn or Favreau for Boba Fett? Uh, why do they have other people direct certain episodes? All right. So to be clear, Riddler, it's not some shows have different directors. The vast majority of shows, it's rare that like one director will do an entire season of something. Right. That's it's it's not common. It happens a little bit more nowadays now that we've got now that TV shows don't know how to make real full length seasons and we get shows that are like six episode seasons. But anyway, for the most part, it is the vast, 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 vast majority of shows use multiple directors for their shows and over the season. The two main reasons for that are this. Number one. The big difference between a movie and television is that in movies, the director is the main creative force. And so, right? But that's not the case in TV. In television, the main creative force is the showrunner and, and their writers. Those are the main creative forces behind a, t behind, a, uh, behind a TV show. And what happens often is this. Think of an 18-episode season, right? That's 18 stories you're telling. And so what happens is while you have a director working on one episode, the writers have like episode five already written. Well, while the, while the director of episode one is working on episode one and shooting and all that kind of stuff, the director of episode five is already at work making create like certain creative decisions, uh, picking certain locations. The director of episode five is already hard at work working on episode five, as is there a director for episode four and there's a director for episode three. And that way a show can run really a lot more smoothly so that our director is really focusing on the episode that they're directing. Now it's not impossible to have one director do it all. We've seen it happen. I mean, it's happening right now with the Obi-Wan show, right? Deborah Chow has directed the entire season. But for the most part, traditionally, uh, because it's the writers who make all the creative narrative decisions about the stories and the directors literally then just focus on directing the episode, they can get to work on doing their stuff before they're ready to start shooting it in advance. So it just makes every, so that the moment they're done shooting episode one, the next director has everything ready to go, ready for episode two, just bring the cast in and they're ready to go. 
And so those are the two primary reasons why the majority of shows have multiple directors for single seasons. But again, now that seasons are so short, they're able to have a single director on it a little bit more. All right, next up. Uh, Mark writes, man, that Obi-Wan trailer was awesome. I agree. I cannot wait for this show. Do you think Hayden Christensen will be in the Darth Vader suit or will he only be in flashbacks? You know what? That is a very good question. And one I was wondering myself, because Vader is very tall. <laughs> like Vader is taller than Hayden Christensen. So I'm not sure. Like, I think we're not just like, yes, I think there's going to be some flashbacks, but I also think we're going to see him without the mask on. But then there's going to be a lot of times where we just see Vader in the mask. And I don't know that this is the answer. I'm just guessing. But my guess is I think a majority of the time it's not going to be Hayden Christensen in the Darth Vader suit. Just like in Mandalorian, 90% of the time, Pedro Pascal is not the guy in the Mandalorian armor. It's usually somebody else. And Pedro Pascal just does the voiceover work and then comes in when his helmet is going to be off. So I have a feeling that's what they're going to do with Vader. Again, Mark, I don't know that that's true. I don't know that that's actually the answer, but that's kind of my guess right now. We'll see if that turns out or not. All right, Mark also writes, Hey, John and Rob, the first trailer for Star Trek Strange New Worlds just dropped yesterday. Had you had a chance to see it? And we just talked about that a minute ago. Yes, I have, and I really like it. I mean, seeing Anson there with, with the full beard and stuff like that, I thought he was a great Captain Pike, by the way. I loved his character when they were in Discovery. And so I'm actually really quite excited to see that whole crew come over. And I think this trailer looks really solid. Whether the show is solid or not, we'll find out. All right. Weird Pastors Kid writes, I am 30 years old, but my parents raised me on the classics. I always thought Cary Grant was the most versatile actor of that era. Uh, while the act, while what actor in today's era could do comedies like Arsenic and Old Lace to thrillers like North by Northwest? Well, I mean, honestly, the first guy that comes, there's several the first guy that completely comes to mind, obviously, everybody knows what I'm going to say, is Tom Hanks. Tom Hanks can do it all. He built his career on pure comedy. Then he went drama, won two Oscars back-to-back, -back, something that has not been repeated since. Won Best Lead Actor back-to-back -back at the Academy Awards for Philadelphia and uh, Forrest Gump. Numerous nominations otherwise, and, and he just can do it all. So if you're looking at certain actors... I mean, that's one uh, as well. I think we've been seeing lately that Leo DiCaprio has better comedic senses than we gave him credit for. So I think Leo can do comedy. We've seen, like, we saw a good mixture of drama and comedy in, like, Wolf of Wall Street. Um, what's another one we just saw him in? Like, uh, Don't Look Up. I didn't love the movie Don't Look Up. But again, Leonardo DiCaprio showed he's got a big, wide range of stuff. He also showed the comedic side and the heavier drama side in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. So, yeah, there are actors like that around today, and those are just a couple of examples. Good question, man. All right, next up. Chris Cutterer writes, Just saw the Obi-Wan trailer. The best review I can give it, it's one of those trailers that makes you so happy, it makes you want to call your mom and tell her how much you love her. I mean, I'll tell you what. I didn't get on the phone and call my mom when I saw the Obi-Wan trailer, but one of the first things I wanted to do was show it to Anne. And so as soon as I was done the show and, and she took a break from work, because both of us work from home, and she came out into the living room, I'm like, honey, 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 have you seen the Obi-Wan trailer yet? She's like, no, I said, come on, sit down, please, please. She's she, just give me a minute to get a drink. Oh, no, 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 get a drink in a minute. I was so excited to show it to her. Get a drink in a minute, baby, just sit down. And it, that's totally what that trailer did. I just wanted to show it to her right away, Chris. All right, next up, Chris also writes, I know it's only six episodes, but I really hope they go into how Owen came to dislike Obi-Wan so much that uh, which has always been referenced in other material. I mean, I think we all know the dislike came about, uh, but I'd like for them to get into it on the show. I, I think they will at least touch on it, Chris. Like, I think they will at the very minimum touch on it. Like, for me, I think it's fairly clear. I think once they took in Luke and Obi-Wan gave them Luke and they took him in. I think they very quickly became as, as parents will, they became attached to him as their child, even though he refers to them as uncle Owen and Beru, but he, for all intents and purposes, they are his parents. 
And I think probably at some point, maybe Obi-Wan might have let on to to uh, Owen Lars that at some point, he's this child is going to have a destiny for Phil out there in the stars. And like parents are like, hell no. No, no, he's staying here where it's safe. This is, you know, and that's probably where I got that from. I mean, it's not like, I don't know that Uncle Owen hated Obi-Wan, but he didn't want Luke going around him because he didn't want Luke to be taken away, to be put into harm's way. At least that's the way Ovi's pictured in my head. Whether that's the case or not, we'll, we'll find out. All right, next up, Chloe Fanning writes, Seeing as Tom Cruise and Steven Spielberg originally wanted to do at least three movies together, uh, whatever happened with that? I really enjoyed their take on War of the Worlds and Minority Report was also good. Uh, their War of the Worlds is a top movie for me. I, I'm going to disagree with you on that. I mean, don't get me wrong. I don't dislike War of the Worlds. I, I like War of the Worlds. I actually, I go to Universal Hollywood all the time and take the we do the Universal Studio Tour. And they always take you to that scene where the crash plane is down in the neighborhood. They always take us through that scene. I, I always love that. Um, but, yeah, I mean, honestly, I vastly prefer Minority Report. But, hey, the thing is, a lot of people in Hollywood want to do a lot of things. Somebody like Steven Spielberg and somebody like Tom Cruise, with the schedules they have and the movies that they're doing, it's a big, it's, it's not like trying to arrange dinner. It's like, man, we got to catch up. Yeah, yeah, let's grab dinner. Let's go over to uh, Antone's Steakhouse next week. Yeah, I got to, like, it's not as easy as that. It's like, hey, when do you have a four-month open chunk of your calendar available? And that becomes really tough. That becomes very tough. And even then, Spielberg might come up with a movie he wants to do and then realize, you know, Cruise is great, but he's not quite the right guy for this movie. Or Cruz may have an idea for a movie he wants to produce and do and think, you know, Spielberg is the greatest of all time, but this isn't really his kind of movie or, or something like that. So it really could be one of anything, too, when you really think about it. All right, thanks a lot for that, Chloe. Uh, next up, Spencer Cooper writes, The best scene in The Dark Knight Rises is when Bane and Batman fight for the first time, and Bane is speaking about the League of Shadows and darkness, and he beats Batman down. Nothing Batman could do to defeat him. I mean, it's a great scene, and it's a scene that a lot of us who read the Nightfall series have very much been looking forward to. If you read Nightfall, you know that Bane is also a complete mastermind. And he has been putting basically Bruce Wayne, he figured out that Batman was Bruce Wayne. Not many people in the comics have been able to do that. Bane did. And then he put Bruce through a series, a long tumultuous ordeal after ordeal after ordeal, breaking him down mentally and physically and then confronting him one-on-one. -on -one. And ultimately, taking the Batman and breaking his back over his knee. And so a lot of us are very much looking forward to that kind of scene. And while that wasn't the same storyline, they kind of gave us that scene. And it was a good... And I agree. I think that probably was the best scene. And I don't love that movie, to be honest. I mean, I like The Dark Knight Rises. I, I don't love it, especially not compared to Batman Begins in The Dark Knight. But I think you're right. That is the best scene of that movie. All right. That uh, uh, dude, That dude, Gary, writes... Could the moment, sorry, movement, could the movement of the release dates be a possible reaction to the response of the Batman? Zero chance of that, no. And maybe Warner Brothers wants to tinker a bit towards a grittier style. Um, no. So what he's referring to is, of course, the other day Warner Brothers did a massive reshuffle, delaying uh, Black Adam, delaying uh, Aquaman 2, delaying The Flash by like another six months again. And... A lot of us are sitting here, what, none of us believe the BS is, it's COVID-related stuff. No, it's not. So we don't really know what the real reason is, but I guarantee you the reason is not, oh, they want to rearrange everything because of the response of the Batman. Number one, Warner Brothers knew exactly what movie they had in the Batman a year ago. So that that's not that. Number two, Warner Brothers has learned the lesson. You would have to be the dumbest idiot in the world uh, running a studio. Think, oh, wait, somebody liked that movie. Let's change everything else we're doing. And that is kind of something that Warner Brothers used to do a few years ago. But they're no longer hyper, hyper, hyper reactionary. Number three, even if they wanted to do that, which would make them the biggest idiots in the world, you can't. People, you, like, nobody's available. Remember, again, it's like with a lot of these actors, you have to get them for, like, four-month chunks of time. Because their time is, like, absolutely incredibly spoken for. 
And it's like, oh, hey, do you got a few weeks to come down here? No, man, I'm filming movies, whatever. So, no, I, I feel, while I don't know what the real reason is, I feel very, very confident, Dad Dude Gary, that that isn't it. So uh, maybe someday we'll find out what it is. All right, next up, we've got, where are we next? We are at Miguel uh, Velasquez, who writes, one or two. Hello, John and crew, just me today. I have a theory about the DC Shuffle. Oh, more theories about the DC Shuffle. What if, and this is a big if, they made this move to restart the DCEU. No. Uh, with the success of the Batman, they plan to make it the new DCEU's Iron Man. No. Uh, which is why they move Flash behind Aquaman and all the other movies so that they use Flashpoint to reset the universe and get a new cast for the Justice League with Battenson leading the way. Maybe they uh, will the Batman sequel to set up the DCEU. Anyways, what do you guys think? Bring on the filthy. All right, thanks a lot for sending that in, Miguel. And yeah, look, while I absolutely freaking love the Batman, it, it is awesome. Part of what makes it awesome is its standaloneness. This Battenson lives in a real world, or at least a much more real world than the world of Aquaman and the world of the Flash, and the world of a Superman, and the world of a Wonder Woman, and so, like in this world that the Batson, this is a gritty, very realistic, like we feel like we could get on a bus and go to a city just like Gotham, right? In that world, there is no Themyscira. There was no blown up Krypton with the last remaining surviving sun jettisoned to Earth, crash landing in a pod and raised by some farmers. Like, it just doesn't work. So, no, I can absolutely assure you, especially after hearing Toby Emmerich's comments about that, it's like, look, we are not focused on connecting all these universes. We're focused on making good individual films. Remember we talked about that on the John Campy show the other day. So, yeah, from everything that the studio execs are saying, it's like, nope, we're not looking to connect this guy to anything. And then on top of that, Batman doesn't fit into, into a world where there's a Superman. So, no, I, I, I think it's pretty safe to say that, no, we're not going to have a Justice League with this Battenson and stuff like that. This Robert Pattinson Batman is in his own universe. Now, that does, does that mean it's impossible that at some point in the future they could try to do something that crosses over? No, I mean, they could, but it really seems out of the realm of possibility right now. But we'll see what transpires, Miguel. Thanks a lot for writing that in, man. Appreciate that. Okay. Next up, we've got uh, Thomas uh, LePage who writes, Hey, John and crew, loving the show. Thank you so much, man. I can see why it is a hit and miss, but my God, do I love Man of Steel. And I'm so glad you appreciate it too. It's one of my all-time favorite superhero films. Hell, it's probably my top 20 favorite all-time films, period. And it's absolutely the most underrated comic book film of all time. Uh, and I'm so glad you appreciate it, too. Where does Michael Shannon's portrayal of Zod stand in your overall comic book movie villains? Yeah, Zod is... Michael Shannon playing Zod is deep and profound. And it's not just Michael Shannon. It's the script as well and the way Zack Snyder decided to use that character and, and direct it. Because at the end of the day... Zod is multi-dimensional and multi-layered because when it's all said and done, while he was a brutal man and while maybe he lacked a moral compass, when it all comes down to it, Zod wanted nothing but to protect his people. Zod wanted to protect Krypton. And when Krypton, Krypton was, for all intents and purposes, gone, all he wanted to do was restore Krypton to protect his people, to bring back that culture that he was a part of, to give new life to that civilization. That's all he wanted to do. Of course, he was willing to sacrifice others, particularly us on Earth. He was willing to sacrifice all the lives on Earth in order to do it. So... He's one of those multidimensional characters that I just love. And I put him in the conversation with, like, Heath Ledger's Joker. I put him in the conversation with the Thanos. Like, I think Thanos might be a little bit better of an overall villain, but I put him in that same conversation. I honestly think he is one of the great comic book movie villains we've ever had. I, I say definitely top five and maybe high in the top five. Like, he's absolutely phenomenal, and that's why I think so on that level. All right, thanks a lot for writing that in, Thomas. Next up, Justin Danford writes... Uh, part one, forgive me for I have sinned and thought up my own version of the Batman 2. Okay, here we go. 
Basically, it's Die Hard meets Shutter Island in Arkham Asylum. You know, Rob was bringing up something like that the other day. Uh, Die Hard meets Shutter Island in Arkham Asylum. It's a hostage situation, horror slash thriller, that Batman infiltrates and is ensnared in. But what is real? Uh, inmates run the asylum. He encounters Mad Hatter or Scarecrow, who make him question reality as he navigates the maze of Arkham. He is confronted with his dark mirror, Man Bat, Clayface, and other horrors that otherwise would not fit the Reevesverse. Uh, who is Bruce Wayne really? Is the Batman persona even real? What is really going on at Arkham and by who? Surprise, hostage slash warden Hugo Strange operating under the Court of Owls orchestrates the whole thing to capture the prize study subject, the Batman. The Batman was about who Batman is. Batman 2 can be about who Bruce Wayne is. Batman 3 can be about the true identity and soul of Gotham with Court of Owls at the center and maybe Joker running around frustrating both sides, an agent of chaos. All right, thanks a lot for writing that in, Justin. And yeah, listen, there have absolutely been theories and speculation and ideas and pitches abounding about what they could do with Batman 2. And a lot of stuff is centered around Arkham. I don't think anything about Batman 2 will center around Arkham because with Matt Reeves saying that they're having an Arkham kind of centered HBO show coming, I think that kind of takes that out of the running. Also, I got to say, the way you're describing it sounds more like a video game. Like everything you just talk, talk about stages in a video game. And I don't know if that plays out well in a full three-hour movie, but I'll tell you what. There's, there's a three-act structure in there. There's absolutely a three-act structure in there that you just kind of put in. Like the Batman going to investigating and infiltrating Arkham. Then the trials and tribulations of Batman while in there at Arkham. And then the third act coming to the culmination, realizing it's really about Hugo Strange and the Court of Owls, and then the resolution of that story. There's a perfect three-act three structure there. So who knows, Justin? Maybe that's the direction they decide to actually go in. All right. Next up, we've got the Tipsy Pirate, I like the name, who writes, Hey, John, I was always disappointed we never got the promised sequel to Dark City with Rufus Sewell. Maybe a series reboot? Could this be covered in Movie Club? It's such a good movie. All right, thanks a lot for writing that in. And number one, it will never be covered in Movie Club. Like, Movie Club is celebrating our favorite movies of the last 25 years, right? So that could be one of our favorite movies from last year, one of our favorite movies from 20 years ago, whatever. But it's, when we say celebrating our favorite movies the last 25 years, I'm not just talking about me and Rob. I mean our, you guys and us, like our favorite movies. And the reality is very few people have watched Dark City. Very few people. And I think it's okay. Like I think, I think it made like $14 million domestically or something along the way, like 15 million, 14 million, something in that neighborhood. Not very, very few people saw it. Uh, and I thought it was a decent movie. I, di I didn't think it was great. So I can right up, up front say, no, it's, we're probably never going to cover it on uh, movie club. But the idea of revisiting it and stuff like that, again, it just didn't have the popularity. It didn't have the audience to kind of justify that. Now there's some really interesting things in that movie. It's hyper stylized. Like it actually almost feels like a Tim Burton film. Do you know what I mean? It, it kind of, in some ways, it's got very much the overtures of like a Batman Returns kind of feel to it, like an aesthetic to it that's right there. And by the way, good Canadian kid, Keith or Sutherland, in the, uh, Keith or Sutherland in that, Jennifer Connelly, who I absolutely adore, and Rufus Sewell, who I don't know why that guy never broke through to being like a big A-list star. I think Rufus Sewell is great. I like him in just about everything he appears in. And of course, a lot of people will think of him... Uh, playing alongside Heath Ledger in A Knight's Tale. He was a great bad guy in that. I've never understood why he didn't get bigger. He had all the tools. He's a good-looking guy, super talented, uh, had a lot of versatility to him. But yeah, but I, but anyway, on that level, no, I can't see them revisiting Dark City, and I, and unfortunately, we won't be doing a movie club. But I'm glad you like it that much. That's a deep cut, man. We don't get a lot of people bringing up Dark City around here, Tipsy Pirate. Thank you for doing so, my friend. All right, next up, Stormin' Norman writes, Tokyo Vice, star starring Ansel Elgort and directed by Dustin Daniel Cretton, who of course did Shang-Chi, is set to premiere on HBO Max in less than a month. And still no trailer. Am I the only one excited for this series? Uh, how, with Michael Mann directing the first episode, 
Um, well, you got to also remember, while yes, sometimes TV series will drop trailers really early. I mean, just look at, we just had the Obi-Wan trailer, right? Even though that movie was still like more than two and a half months away, or that show, I should say, was more than two and a half months away. Um, but often television will not drop trailers like that that early, right? By the way, the one of the things that I'm really interested in about uh, Tokyo uh, Vice is the fact that we've got, we were just talking about uh, Batman Begins the other day, Ken Watanabe. I love Ken Watanabe. He's got like one of the coolest and best voices in all of movies, right? No matter what movie he pops up in, doesn't matter. Uh, and that's exciting to me. El Gord, of course, coming off the big success of West Side Story that I thought was the best film of the year. Um, and I'm looking forward to it. Like a Western journalist living in Japan, taking on the mob and things like that. There's nothing in there not to be excited about. But we are getting really tight to when they should start their promotion. I think they'll probably start doing it pretty soon. All right, let's keep our eyes open for it, Storman. Next up, perfectly legal blockade rights. Love James Earl Jones, but I think he's too old to voice Vader or Mufasa. I'm hoping his voice isn't distracting in Obi-Wan because I found it really distracting in Rogue One. I'll, I'll tell you this. I, I'm not, maybe I just missed the announcement. I'm not even sure he is voicing Vader in Rogue One. I, I'm not even 100% sure about that. Uh, maybe he is, maybe he isn't. And I agree, his voice has changed. But, I mean, with all the digitalization you can do, I mean, look, I, I said this before and I got some people mad at me, but I said, I'm perfectly okay if James Earl Jones doesn't voice Vader anymore. James Earl Jones has served his tour of duty, man doing the voice of Vader. He's done it faithfully and iconically for decades and decades and decades. And he's the man. And he's earned his retirement from it. But if they want to use James Earl Jones in it, I'm, I'm sure it'll be perfectly fine too. By the way, I really liked him as the voice of Mufasa in the newest Lion King. I really like the new Lion King. F, F everybody. I don't care what anybody else says. I love that new Lion King. I thought it was great. Not as good as the original, but I, I loved it anyway. And part of the reason for that was the voice of James Earl Jones. So, I am totally fine if they want to use James Earl Jones again. I'm okay with that. But I'm also totally okay with the rest of us tipping our caps and saying, well done, sir, for the decades of giving us that iconic voice in that iconic character. And it's totally okay now if somebody else takes up the mantle. So I'm good either way, perfectly. I'm good either way. All right. Uh, Ian Highland writes, hey, John and crew. With the new Obi-Wan trailer, they show the live-action version of the Grand Inquisitor. What are your thoughts on the appearance? And do you think people overreact on live-action adaptations? I personally like the pinhead vibes. Hey, listen, I was saying a little bit earlier, Ian, that, yeah, I'm not a fan of the look. But that will become irrelevant if the character is good. If the character is good at the end of the day, we won't really care. And by the way, we only got slight glimpses of the Grand Inquisitor. Like, maybe once we see him in context, a little more of a fuller context, maybe then we'll appreciate a little bit more. Maybe we won't. Again, all it comes down to, like, it, what point, what's the point if the character looks amazing, but is terrible? It doesn't make the character any better just because he looks good. And I think a lot of us will completely overlook the appearance of the character, if, if we don't like it all that much, if we find the character to be compelling and threatening and awesome. So and that's all really comes down to. But yes, on its surface, I'm not a big fan of the look of it. But I already like the character because of the way he comes across in the trailer. All right. Next up, an anonymous viewer writes, one of two. Hi, John or Rob. Uh, Rob briefly brought up an issue a couple of days ago on Mailbag. So I have a story. Last week, after I watched The Batman, I looked around and I saw all the mess in the theater. And I felt bad for these two guys that had to clean it up. So I told them, man, they don't pay you guys enough to pick up after these slobs. He looked at me dead in the eyes with frustration and disappointment and said, no. No, they effing don't. How can theaters fix this problem? I feel it gets worse with time. Thanks. Love the show. All right. Thank you for sending that in seconds from disaster. And listen, this is why, I, if you've watched my show for any period of time, you know I will take moments in my show sometimes to say, like especially like when Spider-Man No Way Home was coming out, I said, guys, listen, everybody's going to the theaters this weekend. This is going to be the first big rush of people that the theaters seen in a long time. Their staff is going to be unprepared. They're going to do the best that they can. Can you do a brother a favor and pick up after your damn self? It doesn't take a lot. Just when you're done, 
take your popcorn bowl, throw your cup in it and whatever else in and bring it out and throw it in the garbage yourself. Well, they hire staff to do that. Yeah, they do for fucking children who spill their stuff and leave stuff behind. Yeah, they do. But can you kind of clean up after yourselves? These, these kids, adults who work in these theaters, they're there trying to facilitate you and me having a great time at the theater. The least we can do is just do our own little part by just picking up after ourselves. They're not asking us to go and grab a mop and clean the floors. Just pick up after yourself. What can they do about it? Here's what I think they should do. I find in movie theaters where an actual person comes out, and there are several theaters like this in LA, where an actual person comes out at the beginning of the, before the show starts, says, hey everybody, thanks for choosing our theater. Please be respectful of the people around you. Please make sure you do not take out your phones. You know, stuff like that. I find theaters where an actual person comes out and says that, I find the amount that people actually take out their phones is way lower than other theaters. I have no scientific data to back that up. That's just my own anecdotal experience. But I really think they should start including that in the pre-show, whether it's on the screen or an actual person coming out while you're saying, please don't talk, text, or use your phone during the showtime. I think they should start adding in there. And please make sure you dispose of your snacks and whatever in the garbage receptacles we've provided for you right outside the door. I think even that's a good start. Just start encouraging us moviegoers to, you know, pick up after our damn selves. I think even just a slight encouragement. Just saying, hey, it'd be great if you did this, guys. You know what I mean? So if they did that, I think that might start the way of helping. And it's up to you and me, guys. You and me, the moviegoer. Just let's start cleaning up after ourselves, and I think that'll make things go a lot better. All right, next up, we got Russell Amador who writes, Hey, John, thank goodness for the, for the fan-first screening of Batman last week. It's like my son wanted me to see it before he arrived, which was the case as he arrived on March 4th, 2022, which was the opening day of Batman. I'm now watching shows late nights as sleep is out of order. Is out of order. Haha, <laughs> stay filthy. Well, first of all, Russell, dude, congratulations on the arrival of your son, man. That is super exciting. And as a movie fan, I'm really glad you got to see the movie before your son arrived too. Because that would be like, you'd be with your son, but it's like, understand, daddy loves you. But daddy's got to go see the Batman. So I'm glad you didn't have to have that conversation with your new son. So congratulations on that, Russell. That is awesome. We all celebrate with you, man. And I'm glad you had a chance to see the movie before the big event. All right. Next up, Bob Chapek writes, Before attending any future MCU films, I implore the fans to practice the teachings of John Pisces Campia. Chickity check your expectations before you wreck your film spectations. Uh, a little bit of vanilla ice in there. Yeah, so... For those of you who don't know what Bob Chapek or Paycheck is referring to, I basically have a rule for myself, and I think should be a rule for all film fans. I say, don't let your speculation become expectation. Because, you know, especially like when WandaVision was coming out and when, when Spider-Man was coming out, things like that, like everybody's talking about, man, people just shouldn't speculate. No, we should speculate. Speculating's fun. Speculation is the most participatory thing we can do as film fans engaging with films outside of actually being in the theater itself. Speculation is fun. Speculation is entertaining. And speculation bonds us as fans together too. There's nothing wrong with speculation. The problem becomes when people allow their speculation to become expectation. Because what happens is you speculate, hey, maybe this will happen. Maybe this will happen. Ooh, what if this happens, right? And then you go watch the movie and you see what happens and you just enjoy it. But expectation is different. It's like, I expect Magneto to show up at the end of WandaVision to say he's Wanda's real dad. Well, now when that doesn't happen, you think that's a fault in the movie because you expected it. You go in expecting and people going, oh, that's a missed opportunity. They didn't do what I thought they should have done, right? So look, speculation is fun. Just don't let speculation become expectation. Or in the vanilla ice way of saying that, chickity check your expectations before you wreck your film spectations. Thank you for that, Bob. All right, next up. Scott Brown writes, one of two. 
I think with these video game adaptations like Last of Us, God of War, etc., uh, run the risk of being redundant. If it's going to be the exact same story and characters, as a fan, why would I waste my time on something that's inferior to the product I love? When they do the adaptations, they have to be as good or better than the game. Otherwise, what's the point? Like Uncharted, I have zero interest in the movie because I heard some reviews saying that the movie isn't for fans of the game. They need those fans. Um, all right, <clears throat> let me talk about that for a second. I... First of all, there's nothing new there, right? Whether it's video games, books, comic books, old TV shows, you could have just said the exact same thing for any of them, right? Well, you know, uh, what's what's a book? Uh, da Vinci Code, for example. If you're not going to make the movie better than the thing, and I disagree. It is a different expression of the story. It's a different expression of the story. And by the way, I know a bunch of people who like the Uncharted games and quite like the movie. I, I didn't like the movie myself. I didn't think it sucked. I didn't hate it. I, there's definitely got some good things going for it, but I didn't like the movie myself. But I know a number of people who did like the games that really enjoyed the movie. The movie is a different expression of it, right? And the real problem is, is that when you play a story in a game, you really are creating a lot of it in your own head. A lot of times for a lot of games, much like when you're reading a book, you're creating a lot of stuff in your own head. And then you see it in a different medium. And if it doesn't meet the kind of way you built it up in your head, then all of a sudden you feel disappointed with it, right? Like, I remember a long time ago, I think it was, who was it? It might have been one, it might have been CBC or something like that, one of the Canadian outlets. But they did this thing where people who watch movies based on books... If they watched the movie first and then read the book, they preferred the movie. If you read the book first and then watched the movie, then you preferred the book. It's like whatever was your first experience becomes your template, right? And if what you watch next or read next doesn't match the template you already have, then you didn't like it as much. And so I, I, that's part of going back to the last topic too about don't let speculation become expectations. I'd say... Don't bring any expectations into it. Just go and watch. Let's take, for example, Uncharted. Just go and watch Uncharted for what it is. You know? Just go, sit down, watch it, and enjoy it. And forget about comparing it to this game or that game. Just go and watch it. And there's a hell of a lot of people that go to the movies that don't want the, don't play the video games. So, yeah, it's it's the same challenge, like I said, of any adaptation. Whether it's doing a remake of a previous movie, doing an adaptation of a game to a movie, doing an adaptation of a book to a movie, of a comic book to the movie, whatever. I think it's just, just go in, them, go in there and take them for what they are and judge them on their own merits. And I think you'll be a lot happier as a fan if you do that. But that's just kind of my take on it. All right, next up. We got Mumra, the ever-tipping, <laughs> like that, writes, How do you feel about bringing back intermissions for films in theaters that are three hours or so, but instead of adding to an already uh, longer runtime, you put the commercial-slash-trailers there instead of at the beginning? Time to pee, refill, and check your phone. Um, I don't know if that works. I don't know if that works. Because here's the thing. Like a place like Gale, like if you're going to have an intermission and everybody knows that I like the idea of bringing back intermissions for exceptionally long movies, like movies that are say two hours and 50 minutes or longer. So two hours and 50, two hours and 55, two, three hours, three hours, five minutes or longer. I'm a fan of the idea of bringing back intermissions. I think, and we've gone over many times about what I think the advantages are, um, of doing those things and of having an intermission, right? People don't have to worry about when they're going to run to use the bathroom because three hours is a long time for a lot of people, especially if they're sitting down drinking these giant sodas, right? So you don't have to worry about missing a couple of minutes of the movie because you're going to the bathroom. You're not running in front of people, disturbing them as because you got to go to the bathroom or you're like, you went through your soda and you're thirsty. You want to get another soda or you're, you want, you're getting hungry. You want to grab something to snack. I mean, or you know, people, it'll stop people from checking their phones. Because if they know, oh, in about 15, 20 more minutes, we're going to have the intermission that I can step out into the hallway and use my phone and check my phone. I just think there's a lot of advantages. It gives everybody a chance to stretch their legs a little bit. Again, 
only for longer movies. But the problem is, I think if you're going to do that, you still have to keep it relatively short, right? Five, six, seven minutes tops. And that's not enough to replace the 30 minutes of trailers that they play. And I, I hate that. I think that's one of the big problems in movie going today is how long they play trailers, how long trailers are. It's, it's such a big problem, but unfortunately, that's not going to be enough time to actually replace it. So just play a musical overture or something like that. Play the soundtrack. Have, just bring up the poster of the movie and play the soundtrack or something. So I don't know. That's the way I kind of see it. But I like the fact, Mumra, that you're trying to think of solutions. That's what more people need to do, like what you're doing. You're trying to come up with creative solutions, and I think more people should be like you in that. All right. Uh, let's see. Next up, we have Omar. And Omar writes, uh, hey, John, I'm pretty new and just wanted to say uh, what you and the guys are doing is fantastic. Keep it up. Thank you so much, man. Also, what's your top three comic book movies? I got Spider-Man 2, Spider-Man uh, 2002, and The Dark Knight. Well, I mean, I've, I've said for a long time, I believe personally, Omar, that the three best and uh, I think my wife's trying to text me, so I better double check this. I think the three best comic book movies ever are the original Avengers. I think that's the greatest comic book movie of all time. And then in no particular order, the other two are The Dark Knight and Logan. I just think those are the three best examples of comic book movies ever made. And, uh, you know, hopefully some new ones will come along to take the place of those ones. Thanks, Omar. Next up, MD writes, the Flash movie, in its current iteration, i.e. part of the DCU slash starring uh, Miller, uh, was first planned for, for 2016. Then the first theatrical date announced ended up being for March 23rd, 2018. That's four years ago. As of next week, I was supposed it was supposed to follow Justice League. Oh, I know. That, that's why we've talked about this before. They've gone through no less than three or four sets of writers, no less than three or four sets of directors. They even had time when Ezra Miller was like, I want Warner Brothers to use my script for a thing. I mean, it's just gone through so much drama, and now they just delayed it six months again. This thing is going to come out five years after it was originally supposed to come out in theaters. I mean, it's just getting ridiculous at this point, MD. Like, absolutely ridiculous. All right, BW writes, Hey, John, hope you are doing well. So I don't know if this piques your interest, but it was revealed that uh, Konami is releasing the TMNT Kawabunga Collection, which has the OG TMNT games, arcade, NES, Super NES, Sega, etc., for current consoles. You like? I'm not going to lie to you. I am not a big fan of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, although I did like the one movie they did a couple of years ago, like the first one with Platinum Dune Productions. Um that had, um, oh, why am I freezing on her name right now? Megan Fox. <laughs> it had Megan Fox in it. I like that one. I, I did. I wasn't a big fan of the follow-up, the one that where they had Stephen Amell in it. It wasn't Stephen Amell's fault. I just didn't like the follow-up. Um, I'm not a big fan. Like, to me, I said this before, I'll say it again. The Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles are the real, original Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. The black and white, dark and gritty violent Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles before they turn them into these colorful skateboard riding, pizza eating, cowabunga dude guys. I mean, go back to the original Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles and then you'll have my interest again, BW. All right. Thanks for writing, man. BW uh, Rosa also writes, Hey, JC. Uh, reports came out that Netflix has come under fire for making the first season of the Cuphead show into two seasons, thus not paying animators what they are truly owed. How does that work? My question is, do services like Netflix not realize the problem they are causing? I'm not quite sure there's a problem. I mean, like, I, I've, I've, I know a little bit about the situation, but not much. You know what they always say? A little bit of knowledge is a dangerous thing. But first of all, I don't think it's ever been confirmed that they just turned one season into two seasons. Like, it's very well they could have ordered X number of episodes, but those number of episodes maybe was always meant to be two seasons. Whatever. The issue to me is, and again, I say this as somebody who does not have a thorough understanding of the current situation, okay? I just know a very surface-level stuff about the situation. But my thought, which could be easily refuted if I'm given more information, my thought right now is this. If you were contracted to do, let's, let me pull a number out of my ass, to do 24 episodes. If you were contracted to do work on 24 episodes. 
and you did work on 24 episodes and you got paid for 24 episodes, then I don't see why you should be paid more if the person who paid you for those 24 episodes to decided to release 12 now and 12 later. It didn't change the amount of work you had to do, right? Unless I'm missing, and again, I'm, I'm admitting here, I only have a very basic understanding of this whole situation that's going on with Netflix and Cupheads. But again, my thought is just, if if they got contracted to do X number of episodes and they got paid to the, to that number of episodes, then what difference does it make if, if you got paid for 24 episodes, if Netflix re- releases it as a 24-episode season, as two 12-episode seasons, or as four six-episode seasons? How is that any different? You got paid to make 24 episodes, and you got paid. So, and again, if there's there's probably some information out there that I'm not privy to right now that maybe would totally change my perception, but that's my perception just off the top of my head. But again, I'm not stand, I'm not willing to die on that sword because I, I just know too little about the situation. Thanks for bringing it up, BW. All right. Uh, Chris Caskio writes, I have a question related to the Batman kinda. After seeing the movie twice, it feels to me like the series should go four. And there's my question. Uh, when do you decide how long you want your series to go? And why do most of the time it ends at three? Well, I mean, here's the thing. Most movies get one. Some movies get a sequel. Some get a third. And then some go beyond a third and get a fourth. Like Indiana Jones, we're about to get our fifth one. Like they did the trilogy and then did a fourth, did they five. Um, you don't decide how long your your series should go in advance. You do the movie you see how it was received. You see how what kind of an experience it was for your studio and your talent and your filmmakers to make it. You do all that, and then you decide if there's a place for another one and an idea for another one, and you think the audience will respond, then you do another one. And by no means should you stop at three if everybody still wants to keep going. If everybody still wants to keep going and you're making money and all that kind of stuff, then you go beyond three and you make more, which is why we've had, you know, we're about to get our fourth Thor movie and fifth Indiana Jones movie. And we had eight Harry Potter movies and we had, you know, whatever. So it's not a matter of sitting down. It's like, this should be four movies long. No, no, no. You go each movie one at a time and then you evaluate as you go. And if you do two and you think, man, this, the audience is there. This was hugely popular. We loved making it. We think we have a great story to tell for another one. Then you do three. And then repeat that process. If you think you got a great story for a fourth one and you think it'll make money and there'll be an audience for it and everybody's available and wants to do it, then you make a fourth. So, yeah, sometimes it stops at three, but most of the time it doesn't even get to three, right? And sometimes then it goes beyond three. So, yeah, that's just kind of the way they're looking at it. And, but a lot of times storytellers think in terms of trilogies, so sometimes there's that as well. All right, thanks for writing that in, Chris. Next up, Artie writes, Hey, John and crew. The Hollywood Reporter just reported that Michael Giacchino is set to direct uh, the as-of-yet-untitled Marvel Halloween special for Disney+. Plus. We talked about that a bit on the John Campy show this morning. This sounds really exciting to me. What are your thoughts and bring on the filthy? Well, I mean, I think it's great that a, that a compo- I can't remember the last time I heard that a full-blown Hollywood composer was just going to step in and do it and direct. I, I can't think of the last time I heard that. If I've ever heard that. So, but I'm not going to say I'm excited for because I have no idea if Giacchino can direct or not. I have no idea. But it's very interesting. It's absolutely interesting, Artie. You'll be, see if uh, Michael Giacchino can be like a full-fledged double threat that he becomes like, he is one of the greatest composers in the business today. If he can become a, a great director as well, that'll be interesting. All right. Few Guy Fan writes, Hey, John, or River, or both. You probably meant to write Rob. Uh, Did you guys hear about Sean Levy directing Deadpool 3? Pretty exciting. What are your thoughts? I think it's fantastic. I'm sure we'll talk about it more on the John Campus show on Monday. But when you watch, to me, when you watch Free Guy and you watch The Adam Project, to me, you are seeing kind of Ryan Reynolds at his best, like doing the type of characters that he likes to do, right? There is obviously a great synergy and shorthand between Sean Levy as a director and working with Ryan Reynolds as a, as a talent and a performer. And of course, they're both producers and all that kind of stuff as well, but they clearly work very, very well together. And I loved Free Guy, and I quite enjoyed The Adam Project. 
And I'll tell you what, I was actually, after watching The Adam Project, I remember thinking to myself, I would really like to see Sean Levy direct Deadpool 3. I think these two, I think Ryan and him clearly work really great together. I would love to see this. And it was no more than a few hours later that I look at my phone and see Sean Levy is directing uh, Deadpool 3. So I'm thrilled about it. Again, we'll probably talk more about it on the John Campus Show come Monday. So keep your guys' eyes on it. But again, it's all about the dynamic and the chemistry. These two guys have shown they can work together great. They have produced really good entertaining films for especially Free Guy. And uh, I'll be, I think they're going to be able to carry that over into Deadpool 3 really well. So I'm, I'm very, very excited about that. All right. Next up and final question of the day comes to us from an anonymous viewer who writes, Hello, John. I follow all your videos on YouTube and I really like them. Thank you so much for that. I appreciate that. I recommend you guys check out RRR, which is directed by S.S. Rajamuli, uh, an Indian director who also directed, let me see if I can say this right, Bali, which is the biggest Indian movie of all time. Well, thank you for that. I'll be honest with you. I, I'm not really connected in with a lot of Bollywood film. I remember when I was still working at AMC, we had, I, you know, we had AMC Independent, but they were also working really hard at doing a lot of Bollywood films in a lot of our AMC theaters. And when that was happening, me and Schnepp would go and watch a couple of these Bollywood films. And but I got to admit, I I don't have a lot of time. Like I'm so far behind on so much television, I'm barely able to keep up with the movies. And then really struggle. I don't keep up with the TV shows. And so I don't have a lot of room on my plate for other stuff. But hey, listen, if the opportunity avails itself anonymous for me to check it out, I will probably give it a shot. All right, guys, that'll do it for this installment of Mailbag. Thank you so much for being here and making this show part of your day. Big special thank you to all you guys who sent in those comments and questions. Number one, because you gave us great fun things to talk about. But number two, you supported this channel as you did it and all of us involved with the John Campus Show. Thank you guys so very much for your support. All right, guys, don't forget the John Campus Show returns again on Monday. Make sure you subscribe to this channel, like it, and uh, yeah, all those good things too. So thanks a lot for being here, guys. My name's John Campia, and until next time, my friends, bye-bye.